Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, tonight we're going to be in the book of 1 Kings. As you can tell, we're going to be in five chapters, uh, chapters 5 through 10. And uh, really, we're going to be looking at one part of the story of Solomon, and that is the construction, the design, the preparation for the temple. So uh, exciting stuff. What's interesting, if you want to do this, uh, go back and read through some of Leviticus. Go back and read the final chapters of Exodus, Exodus 25 through 40-ish, and um, check out the construction of the tabernacle in conjunction with the, the construction of the temple. And we're going to talk about some of the similarities, but reading those two things might be interesting to you if, as you're reading through. A couple questions about the study guide. Uh, that study guide is for you to use however you want to use it. I don't have a particular system in mind for you to use the study guide. I'm going to tell you how I use the study guide to prepare for the lessons. I use the study guide, uh, for instance, tonight we're on technically week three. First um, Kings uh, chapters 5 through 10. You can see that in week 3. And so I use that study guide really just to map out how we're going to take those big chunks. So tonight you'll notice the three points that I've used are the three points from the study guide, uh, whatever it is about Solomon, the temple, the dedication. So you'll notice that's the way I break it up to go through that. I use a lot of the information from the study guide in the lesson, but I also use a lot of my own and some commentaries and other, other study. So you might not find everything I talk about in that study guide. If you want to, leading up to next week, read week four, uh, 1 Kings uh, 11 through whatever it is. If you want to read ahead and do the work and then come ready, that's great. If you want to leave our study tonight and go home and, and read that section after, that's fine too. So if you want to read to get ready or you want to read after, if you want to fill in the blanks and do the, uh, the questions they ask, that's great. If not, that's great. Just follow along as we go through the study together. Tonight we're going to be in 1 Kings chapters 5 through 10. And these chapters are centered, as I said, on the construction, the construction of the temple. Chapter 10 is sort of what I guess I would call an epilogue to... Uh, this section, but the main thrust of these chapters is the construction, preparation of the temple. So we're going to look all the way from Solomon's preparations, his planning, his shrewdness in enlisting the help of other nations, and, and we'll see one particular nation, one particular king, to the temple's construction. And of course, it culminates in God's promise to dwell there. In chapter 8, as we see the temple dedicated and Solomon prays, and then we see Solomon turn and bless the people, both in his prayer and in his benediction to the people, we see 
a lot of good history and theology for the people of Israel played out. And it tells us a lot about what the temple is there to do. So from Solomon's preparation to the, to the temple's construction, culminating in God's promise to dwell there. But there's something else that's going on in these chapters too. Even though the center of the story will be the preparation and the construction and the dedication of the temple, there are going to be these undertones throughout the story, and those undertones are pointing us to something else. As the, the study guide, this is a quote directly from that book, the conclusion of this section prepares the reader for Solomon's turning away from the Lord and its tragic result for the rest of God's people. So as we go through the reading, I'm going to point out a few things to you as you read in your own time. And this is true no matter where you're reading in the Bible. As you read through narrative or history or whatever it is, and you come across a section that seems like this is off subject or this is coming out of left field. Like I don't Because tonight we're going to be reading and you'll see interruptions. And you always ask, what are those interruptions there for? Why did the author, by the Holy Spirit, feel the need to put that in right there? Why did he feel the need to say that phrase? Remember last week, we talked about how Solomon loved the Lord, and he obeyed the Lord. And remember this little caveat, though, only he sacrificed on the high places. And we talked about how that was a reference to idolatry and worshiping in a way that God had not commanded him to worship. So you watch out for those little things. That's what we're talking about here. Although we're talking about the construction and dedication of the temple, we're going to see these little glimpses, uh, ominous warnings, really, of things that are to come. And as the, the author says of the book, and I agree with this section, we're going to see these little glimpses of Solomon's turning away from the Lord and what will result for the people. But we start with good, th- good stuff. Uh, just like last week, we start on a high note, the glory of David's kingdom, the glory of Solomon's kingdom. This week, as we come into 1 Kings chapter 5, we are reminded again of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're reminded of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Anybody remember that promise? There's two main promises there. One... I'm going to put one of your sons on your throne forever. The promise that one of David's sons would reign on his throne forever. And the other half of that promise in 2 Samuel 7, 13, one of your sons will build the temple. And it will not be you, David. David had wanted to build the temple for the Lord. So those are the two main promises. And remember last week I told you, if you need to circle, underline, highlight, uh, we turned to 2 Samuel 7 last week. I'm not going to do that this week, but if you want to go ahead and turn there and you weren't here, star, underline, highlight, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, uh, the Davidic covenant. And those are those, those two main huge biblical promises that really tell the rest of the story of the Bible. I mean, if you were to say this is the, the thesis statement for the rest of the entire Bible, It's that God promises David a son that will reign on his throne forever. And we come to the New Testament. The New Testament authors pick up on that really quickly. As Matthew begins his gospel, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, tying him immediately to those big promises of the Old Testament. So star that, circle it, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. One of your sons will reign on your throne forever. 
One of your sons will build me a temple, not you, David. Why was David kept from building the temple? If you were to turn over to 1 Chronicles 22.8, we won't. The reference is there for you if you want to look at it later. Um, the prophet tells Nathan, you will not, the, the prophet tells David, you will not build the temple for me because you are a man of war. You're a man of war or a man of blood. And sure, a lot of those wars were sanctioned by God. And there was defending his people, defending the people of Israel. But if you remember back in Leviticus, we had that distinction between things that are unclean and impure that weren't necessarily sinful. So God is not punishing David by saying, you won't build the temple for me because you've committed so many war atrocities. No, he's saying, you have blood on your hands. Yes, sanctioned wars, defending my people, protecting my people. But there is that sort of ceremonial uncleanness to David that prevents him from building this house for the Lord. However, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, it says, But now the Lord, my God, this is Solomon speaking, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Now we're in a place of peace. We're not in a place of war. A place of peace. God has kept his promise to give Israel peace. You don't have to turn here, but I'm going to read very briefly from 2 Samuel 7. I told you to highlight 12 and 13. Those are the big important verses, but even listen to verse 11. 2 Samuel 7 verse 11 from that time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest, he promises David, from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you what the Lord will make you a house. And then he goes on to the promise of the son, promise of the temple. But it's preceded by that promise. I will give you peace on every side. And then we come to 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, and we see exactly that. Now the Lord God has given me rest on every side. He's given me peace on every side. There's no war. There's no conflict. There's no adversary. There's peace. And so it seems that the time has come for the temple to be built. Now, if you look in the first couple verses there, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we're introduced to Hiram, or Hiram, if you want to be technical about it. I like Hiram. Sounds like some old Jewish guy. Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. Watch this. For Hiram loved David. And look later on in um, verse 5. I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build a house for me. Look at verse 7. When Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. So as we begin this section, we have this foreign king, Hiram the king of Tyre, who loves David and who rejoices that it seems like these promises of God are coming to pass through his son Solomon. 
And Solomon says, just like God promised my father David, I'm sitting on his throne, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And Hiram loves this news, he blesses God, he blesses King David, he blesses Solomon. We see this weird little relationship between him, the king of Tyre, and Solomon now, the king of Israel. So here's the question, how do we see Solomon's wisdom and power on display in his dealings with the king of Tyre? Look at verse 10. Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty. And then in verses 13 through 18, we begin to see how Solomon works out the labor. How are we going to get workers to go to Tyre to get the, the lumber to bring it back to Israel? We read how Solomon establishes these shifts, and they work several months, and they come home several months. And right there in the middle of that is this reminder that it is the Lord who gave Solomon this great wisdom. And because the Lord gave Solomon this great wisdom, so there was peace. So there was this treaty. So there was this agreement of trade between these two great nations. And so the Lord uses Solomon's great wisdom that he gave him. He uses that to bring him glory from this foreign, probably pagan king, who nevertheless glorifies the God of Israel, enters into a treaty with Israel, and whom God then uses to build a house for his name and for his glory. All because... When God asked Solomon, what can I give you? He asked for wisdom and guidance and understanding. How do we see God's faithfulness in all of this? I mean, strung throughout this passage is a reminder of the promise, right? That throughout this whole chapter, we keep going back to that. God made this promise to my father David. God made this promise to David. Even when it comes to this foreign king, he loved David. He knew the promises God made to David. He rejoices to see those promises now fulfilled in Solomon. So every step of the way, we're being reminded of these promises that God has made. And so as the action continues to unfold and the story continues to unfold in front of us, we keep going back to that promise, that main promise God made. One of your sons will sit on your throne and he will build me a house. So every step we take after that is based on that promise and God's faithfulness to keep it for his people. As we come into 1 Kings chapter 6, we see the actual design of the temple in detail. The actual design of the temple in detail. Look just at the first couple verses here, 1 Kings chapter 6. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, you notice the author is rooting the story that we're seeing now. He's, he's rooting it in their history. He's rooting it in where they've come from, where God has brought them. There's more of God's faithfulness. This is rooted in when God brought you out of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Zeev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Verse 2, the house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, that's about 90 feet, 20 cubits wide, that's about 30 feet, 
and 30 cubits high, that's about 45 feet. And then it begins to detail the vestibule and the porch and the inner sanctuary and the storage chambers. So we begin to see the design laid out. So we have about a 90 foot long structure, the actual house of the temple, 30 foot wide and 45 feet high. Pretty big, impressive building. Look at verse 7. There's an interesting note here. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. It's an interesting note, isn't it? Again, there's that little insert. Like, why is that there? (laughs) You just suddenly outlaw hammers and iron tools. Now, write these two verses down. You can go look at them later. Exodus 20, 25. Exodus 20, 25. As God is giving these uh, commandments about the altar and how the various altars for the tabernacle are to be constructed, he says in Exodus 20, 25, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, chiseled, hewn, carved. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So Exodus 20, 25, this, this decree from God, as you build the altars, do not make it from hewn stone and do not use your tools on it. Deuteronomy 27, 5 through 6. Deuteronomy 27, 5 through 6. Um, another command about building the Lord an altar. There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, just like the construction in the temple with the stones from the quarry, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. So we could go into a lot of speculation about why they shouldn't use an iron tool, why it can't be carved or chiseled or broken. It seems that it's going to be taken directly from one big old rock. So why is that the case? Why does the Lord institute that? I don't know. And there's a lot of speculation we could go into. But for whatever reason, the Lord says if you use your tools on it in that way, you're going to profane it. I don't know if it's the act of being violent to it or breaking it or cracking it. Or if it's the sound, as it says here in verse 7, there was no iron heard in the building of the house. Whatever it is, it's going back there. For whatever reason, Solomon, the, the builders remember, hey, when God commanded Moses to build those altars, do it from stone don't use tools, no hewn stone, no iron tools. And so they're hearkening back to the very construction of the tabernacle and the furniture and the altars for the tabernacle, even as they go into building the temple. So one of those interesting notes that's there, and it's there for a reason. That's why we have that detail. All the details we see, really, reveal that this is the same basic design as the tabernacle. In fact, if you were to read the the cubit length and width and height of the tabernacle and the various sanctuaries, the most holy place, the holy place, the courts, the lavers, the washings, the, the, the candlesticks, the table for the showbread, if you were to read all that, you really see the temple and it's basically double size that. Take everything that the tabernacle was, a mobile tent made of animal skins and curtains and all these beautiful, it was beautiful, but now you multiply that, make it bigger and better and permanent, 
And that's basically what we see in the design of a temple. The temple is meant to be that. It's meant to be a continuation of the tabernacle. It's meant to be a continuation of the tabernacle. If you remember the way the tabernacle is constructed, you begin to read the construction of the temple. Look there in chapter 6, verse uh, 23. Chapter 6, verse 23 of 1 Kings. Listen to some of this. In the inner sanctuary, that is, that is the holy of holies, the most holy place, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that the wing of one touched the other, and so that the wing of one touched the wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Look at verse 29. All the walls of the house he carved and engraved with figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. In verse 32, we see two doors with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Again, at the end of that verse, cherubim and palm trees. Down in verse 35, on them he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Now, this is very detailed stuff, like they were getting what they carved on it and how tall the cherubim were in the Holy of Holies. And, you know, the Ark of the Covenant itself has two cherubim sitting on either side of it. And then we have on the door and on the walls these carvings of palm trees, cherubim, and these blooming open flowers. So as you think about the layout of the tabernacle and the temple, you go from the profaneness of the world to the inner court to the holy place where only the priests could go, and that after sacrificing and washing themselves, and then the most holy place, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, only once a year, the day of atonement, after making sacrifice for themselves, numerous ritual washings. What do you see here? You see a progression from the profaneness of the world into the holiness and the center of God's glory and God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And so there's, there's, there's progression from the profane to the holy, from the world to the center of God's presence. And what do we see there except images of cherubim and trees and flowers? It's interesting when you think about the last, one of the last times actually we saw a cherubim. Can you think of, can you think in the Bible of where that was? I saw you mouth it, Jennifer. No, say it out loud. You said it out loud to Janet. The Garden of Eden. Yes. What was the uh, what was the circumstances that we saw that cherubim guarding the garden to keep them from getting back in? It's interesting. The last time we actually see a cherubim, and these are just carvings. It's in a garden 
where there are what? Probably some trees, probably some flowers. And so we see this progression from the sinfulness and the fallenness of the world as we progress further and further to the center of God's presence in the most holy place, guarded, guarded. I mean, literally, two big cherubim with their wings spread over the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the very center of the presence of God and His glory and His name. We see a picture of Eden. We see a picture of mankind being taken back to the center of God's presence in Eden with trees and flowers and the cherubim that are guarding the presence of God. But for now, they may only enter into the presence of God by the mediation of the priests and then into the inner sanctuary by the mediation of the high priest and only that once a year. So that, that's a very striking note about the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. You see the same basic progression from the world to the presence of God and all these beautiful pictures of trees and the cherubim and the flowers reminding us of God's presence in Eden and mankind there with him. As we come into chapter 7, notice the end of chapter 6, verse 38, the very last sentence. How many years was Solomon building the temple, does it say? Seven years. Now, here's another one of those details that you say, why do we go here? Chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house. How many years? Thirteen years. And he finished his entire house. Notice verse 2. It's like a little mirror of chapter 6, isn't it? He builds God a house. Now it's time for me to build my house. Seven years. Thirteen years. Look at verse 2. Another repeat from chapter 6. We saw the dimensions of the temple. Now we see the dimensions of Solomon's house. Verse 2, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits. What was the length of the temple? It was 90 feet in length. Solomon's house is 150 feet in length. Its breadth, what was the temple? 30 feet wide. Solomon's house, 75 feet wide. The height is the same, but we have uh, just a little bit more, actually a lot more, from 90 feet to 150 feet, from 30 feet to 75 feet. And we go on to read of all the fine cedar and the gold and all the fine stones that, that Solomon used to build this elaborate, large house for himself. Why do we have this interruption? The author is trying to tell us something, because in verse 13, look, we're going back to the temple. The temple furnishings. But here between the initial construction of the temple and the furnishings of the temple, we have this little insight, maybe, into the heart of Solomon. Who, though he wanted to make a great name and a great house for God, we see at least an inclination on his part. A little bit of an inclination for him to make a greater name for himself and a greater house for himself. A little bit of speculation there for sure, but why would the author put that right in the middle? Why do we keep seeing these reminders that Solomon is a sinner? Why do we keep getting these signs of things that are to come, not only for Solomon, but for the nation of Israel? Uh, here's a short little three-minute, like three-and-40-second-minute um, video, <coughs> a little tour of the temple. So this just kind of gives you a little visual 
of the construction of the temple that we're reading about. It shows you the court, the altar, the bronze laver with the oxen underneath for the ceremonial washings. It takes you into the, <coughs> excuse me, the holy place and then the most holy place. So check out this video and then we'll continue. All right, if you want, uh, there's about a 10-minute video by the same folks, same animation, everything, about a 10-minute video that has a lot of narration that will take you through every piece of furniture and the altar and the various places and uh, carvings. So if you want to go find that on YouTube, I, I think you can just search like Solomon's Temple 3D, <laughs> and there's that short little snippet of everything, and then there's the 10-minute video with the narration that takes you through the significance of all the the furniture from the, the altars to the big uh, brazen sea, they called it, where they kept the water that would have been put into those other little carts you saw for the various washings in the different places of the temple, all the way to the holy place and the incense. A lot of good stuff about the altar of incense and its placement right there in front of the holy of holies and the prayers of God's people and a lot of good stuff we could go into um, that we will one day uh, when we, we're doing a little more than an overview. So go look at that, 10 minutes um, journey through the temple. As we come to the middle part of uh, 1 Kings chapter 6, we have an echo of God's promises and warnings to Israel in the wilderness. The temple is to be a reminder of this covenant relationship between the people and their God. So as we come to the end of the temple's construction... And then we talk about the building of Solomon's palace. And the last part of chapter 7, the furnishings for the temple that you can read through on your own. It just takes you through the exact measurements of every altar and the basins and this basin and that vessel and this vessel. You can read through all that. We come to the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. The temple has been constructed. It's finished. The furnishings are brought in. And now we have the dedication and Solomon's prayer of the temple. And everything that we read in these opening chapters, these opening verses of chapter 8, is a reminder of Israel's larger story. As we keep seeing, the author keeps tying us back to the old story, whether it's David or Moses, when God brought them out of Egypt, when God made this promise to David. The author keeps wanting us to remember these promises that God made and the actions that God has performed to save his people, to redeem them, and now to give them their country and this house of worship. All of it is to be a reminder of the larger story. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. All the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast, the feast, in the month of Ithanim, which is the seventh month. Know your months and your feasts. I confess I had to look this one up. It, it is the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. The feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. And if you remember why God instituted the feast of tabernacles, what was the purpose? To remind the people how they dwelt in tents in the wilderness. And not just to remind them of how they dwelt in tents in the wilderness, but to remind them of God's provision for them in the wilderness. That as you dwelt in tents, God himself is your dwelling place. As you were provided for in the wilderness, God himself is the one who provided for you. Bread from heaven, quail from heaven, water from the rock. 
It was God who was your shelter, God who was your protector, God who brought you out of Egypt and now brought you safely to the promised land. All of that wrapped up in the Feast of Booths. And so it's no accident then that the temple itself, this house for God, this permanent tabernacle for God, is going to be dedicated in this feast of the seventh month, which is the Feast of Booths. Look at verses 3 through 4. And watch this. Remember, no detail is unimportant. No wording is unimportant. All the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. The priests take up the ark of the Lord. Can you remember every time in the Exodus when the priests would deconstruct the tabernacle, take the tabernacle, take up the ark of the Lord, and go where God was leading them. How did he lead them? The fiery pillar by night and the cloudy pillar by day. God's glory went ahead of them to the place they were to go. And as they went, they took up the tabernacle. They took up the ark. The priest did. Think about Joshua chapter 1 as they're about to come into the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan River to come into the promised land for the first time. Their feet are going to step foot on the land that God promised. The Jordan River is parted before them. It dries up and the priest take up the ark and they bring it into the land that God promised. All of that is being pictured in these short verses. As the temple is finished, it's about to be completed. The dedication is about to be made and the priests, one last time, think about that. One last time, the priests take up the ark and instead of moving it from place to place to place to place to place, now they bring it into its permanent resting place in the temple. Look at verses 10 through 11, even more echoes of the Exodus. When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now you think about a cloud, and sure, it, you know, why, were they, why were they unable to perform their duties? I mean, maybe they couldn't see. I don't know. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that they, <laughs> verse 11, the priests could not stand. They couldn't stand to even do their job. Think about it. It's not just that they couldn't see. They couldn't gather themselves. They couldn't stand up in the presence of God's glory. Uh, think about the Hebrew word for glory. We think of glory as just you know, bright, shining lights, you know, the beauty of heaven, the glory of God. You know, there, there's brightness there. There's radiance. There's purity. That is the glory of God. But the word means a heaviness. The word means that there's a weight to the glory of God. It's a serious, heavy thing, the glory and the purity of God. And so whatever filled the temple with this glory of God, this cloud, was the weight of the glory of God's presence. So much so that not only could the priests not see to do their job, they could not lift their bodies <laughs> to do their job. And they had to come out of the temple. Um, what is being reminded here as we see the cloud of God's glory filling the temple? The cloudy pillar by day, the fiery pillar by night, 
the Shekinah glory of God that was over the tabernacle there in the middle of his people to remind them of what? I'm in your midst. I'm your God. You're my people. I'm here with you. And now we have the completion of the temple and the glory of God is there saying what? I'm with you. You're my God. You're, I'm your God. You're my people. I dwell here in the midst of you. It's the same thing he was telling them through their journey through the wilderness. He now tells them in this permanent construction of the temple. As you look at verses 12 through 22, Solomon's prayer of benediction. He, he, he blesses the Lord and now he, he blesses the people. And in verses 12 through 22, I just want you to notice the things that Solomon mentions. Uh, look at verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David. Another reminder of David. Later in that same verse, actually verse 16, since the day that I brought my people out of Egypt. This is a reminder of the Exodus. Verse 19, he reminds the people of the promise that God made. Your son who shall be born to you shall build a house for my name. And then in verse 20, the Lord promises, I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So there's these constant reminders, again, as we go through the story. And now Solomon blesses the people, he blesses the Lord. And as he's worshiping the Lord, he's reminding the people in his prayer of what God has done. The promises he made to David, the promises he made to the people, and what he did through his servant Moses. And then he reminds them of the specific promise he made to David to raise up one of his sons and to build him a house and a temple. So as Solomon prays, as the temple is constructed, as the temple is dedicated, every step of the way, reminder, 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 visual reminders, not just of those promises that God made, but of the entire story of redemption, that God is bringing his people back into his presence. He's bringing them back into his glory. So we continue to go through the dedication that Solomon makes. Look at verse 27. In Solomon's prayer, he says, verse 27 of chapter 8, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Solomon understands that this building cannot contain God. This temple was unlike any other temple in the ancient world. Any other temple in the ancient world that you go into, well, you might have seen the grand columns, there might still be gold and carvings, but what would be at the center of that temple where the presence of their God was supposed to be? An idol, an image, some form of what their God looked like. And God is constantly reminding the people in Exodus, remember, you did not see my face. Remember, you did not see a form. And what is the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself any graven image so as to bow down and to worship it. The temple of Israel is very different from every temple in the ancient world and that when you go in, there is no idol of God. There is no image of Yahweh. Why? Because Solomon and the people understand that while this is a temple, 
a presence of God's glory and name among his people, it cannot contain him. His glory he has promised to put there and to dwell there in a very real way. But this is not a little box for God to live in. In fact, Solomon says, even the heavens can't contain you, God. This is a reminder of God's promised presence among his people. Just like he was with them in the wilderness, just like he was visibly present with them by his glory, the cloud and the fire, he now says, I am with you here. Look at verse 29. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, you will forgive. Circle that. When you hear, you will forgive. God's dwelling place is in heaven, not on earth. But this is a place he has chosen for his presence, his glory, and his name to dwell. And here's what God is saying. I'm going I'm to be here. My glory is here. My name is here. And if anyone is going to leave, it will be the people that leave God, not God who leaves the people. Now, sure, God's glory departs from Israel. His presence departs. He's no longer with them several times, but it's only after they have left him. It's only after they have abandoned him that he revokes his name and his presence and his glory from among them. God says, I'm with you. You obey me. You follow me. You're faithful to me. I'm here with you. My presence is here with you. I'm not going anywhere, even though you might. Again, we notice some little interesting notes that are included by the author, starting in verse 41, chapter 8. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name, talking to Solomon, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, or talking, Solomon talking to the Lord. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to, in order that all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel." And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. And look again in verses 60 through 61. That all the peoples of the earth, circle that again, may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as this day. What is the missional goal of the temple? If you were just to write one phrase for this, that all the peoples of the earth may know. There's this prayer, this blessing on even the foreigners that come because they hear of the glory of Solomon, they hear of the glory of the Lord that he has given Solomon, that they hear of the glory and the beauty of the temple, that all the peoples will come, all the nations will come and see what God has done for his people. So that what? So that all the peoples 
all the nations. Remember that promise God made to Abram? Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And in you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. So even in this little inclusion, this little piece of instruction about how to treat foreigners, and that when they come, let them see who God is, is a reminder of these promises that God made Abraham, that his people would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Chapters 9 through 10 begin, uh, I like this word, this old-fashioned word, but they begin with this ominous appearance of the Lord. The Lord appeared to Solomon back in 1 Kings chapter 3, didn't he? And, and he appeared, and Solomon said, O Lord, grant me wisdom, and it pleased the Lord, and he granted him wisdom, and that's the end of the episode. Here in chapter 9, however, we have a little lengthier visit between the Lord and Solomon. And while the first part is the Lord's uh, hearing of Solomon's prayer, his promise to put his name in the temple forever, his promise to fulfill the promises that he made to his people. But starting in verse 6 of chapter 9, we see a turn. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Verse 7, what? I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. If we're talking about this next question, what are some of the warnings that God gives and why are they so shocking? That's one of them. If the promise was, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and then you have this warning, I will cut you off. And you won't be my people anymore, and you won't have your land. You can see how shocking that would have been for them. And the house that I've consecrated, the temple itself, for my name, I will circle this, cast out of my sight. There's a bunch of fun word stuff we could do with this. We don't have time for it. But just circle that, cast out, how, 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 how the Lord talks about the temple as something he can just pick up and cast away. And you go, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 21, Matthew 20 through 22. When, when Jesus is talking about if you pray and you have the, this faith, you can say to this mountain, be picked up and cast into the sea. And then you go to Revelation and you see what the mountains are picked up and cast into the sea it's interesting the correlation between what jesus is saying about the temple what's going on in revelation what happens in ad 70 and what god promises here i will cast out the temple verse 8 and this house will become a heap of ruins and verse 9 when when foreigners come, come by and they see this destruction and they say what happened because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this, circle this, disaster on them. These ominous undertones to this visit from the Lord. This isn't just, hey, Solomon, how can I help? What can I do for you? Give me wisdom. It pleased the Lord. Now we have this warning, serious, shocking Stop you in your tracks kind of warning for Solomon and the people. Again, a sign of things that are to come, not only for Solomon, but for the people as we go through the rest of the book.
In fact, as we go through the rest of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, we begin to see some flaws in Solomon's character. Verses 12 through 13, it seems that there's some deception involved in what he gives the king of Tyre. And that Solomon, as a gift, chooses to give the king of Tyre some land, but it's not the best land. And it seems as if there's a little bit of deception, a little bit of, what's the word I'm looking for? When you do this to someone, why is it leaving me? Like bamboozle? Is that the word? <laughs> he he bamboozles Hiram. That tickled me. He he bamboozles Hiram, the king of Tyre. And in verse four, fifteen, we see uh, that Solomon used forced labor, that is slavery, to build the house of the Lord. So so we don't have a lot of elaboration on these events again, but the author wants you to see these little holes. And he's beginning to poke in Solomon's glory and Solomon's character as a king. These reveal a failure to rule with justice and righteousness, or righteousness and justice. And remember back in chapter 2, the charges that David gave Solomon? You need to reign with righteousness and justice. We begin to see that Solomon does not always reign with righteousness and justice. That continues into chapter 10 in the, the famous story, really, of the, the visit of the Queen of Sheba. I think Handel wrote an entire oratorio about this, about the visit of the Queen of Sheba to see the glory of Solomon and his kingdom and his temple. It says in chapter 10, verse 1, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning... The name of the Lord. Is there something about that order there? I don't know. But it's interesting. When she heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Down in verse 5. The food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. Everything that she was witnessing literally took her breath away. The glory and the beauty and the majesty of Solomon and his court and the temple and the sacrifices took her breath away. She says in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of the house of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he made you king. And watch this, that you may execute, here this is again, justice and righteousness. If you were to just take your pen and look at verses 14 through the end and circle gold, you would see gold, the ivory throne, the finest gold, how he surrounds his throne with two lions and then 12 other lions. And in verse 21, all the drinking vessels were made of gold, that he had plenty of gold, silver, ivory. Verse 22 is funny. He ships in apes and peacocks. And some of your versions might even say apes and baboons, which is what it could be, not peacocks. But we begin to see Solomon's extravagance, that his glory and his power and his wealth is going to an extreme, the extravagance of Solomon's kingdom and his glory. Maybe a bit of pride, certainly a bit of power. 
So as we come to the end of this section, and we're, qu- we're sort of left on this, hang, uh, this cliffhanger about what will come next, here's what this is all about. I'm going to go through this quickly, and uh, just to give you the blanks and give you some time to read and study on your own at home. At the center of the temple's significance is the need for the forgiveness of sin. I mean, what is the temple all about except sacrifices? It's about the altars, it's about the sacrifices, it's about the priesthood, it's about the blood. Again and again and again, the temple is there for the atonement of the people's sins, the forgiveness of sins. All of even that is rooted in the covenants that God made with his people. The covenants that he made to Abraham. The covenant that he made with Moses and the people. The covenant that he then makes with David. All of which keep coming back into play. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'll be there with you if you obey me. But if you don't obey me, what do you need? The forgiveness of sins. You need the blood to cover you. You need atonement. You need mercy. All of that wrapped up in those covenants and promises that God made the people. All of which are there in the temple, which is a reminder of all of God's promises. The promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'll make you a great nation, and I'll make you bless all the other nations. The promise that he made the people of Israel, that I'll be with you as your God, you'll be with me as my people. The promise that he makes David, that I will put one of your sons on your throne forever. The cloud is a reminder of God's promised presence with his people. That cloud that leads them by day and by night and the cloud that then appears in the temple. God's promised presence, a presence which humanity enjoyed fully in Eden, but was lost in the fall. You should notice then that when you come to the New Testament, especially John chapter 2, John chapter 1, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you'll destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And they think he's talking about the building. But what does John say he was talking about himself? Jesus is the temple of God in bodily form. In fact, when John says in John 1:14, John 12 and 14, the word became flesh, you know the rest, and we beheld his glory. The glory that filled the tabernacle, the glory that filled the temple. When Jesus comes, who was with God and who was God, he comes as flesh to be with his people. He is the very presence and the glory of God. And by his sacrifice, He brings the forgiveness of sins and he brings us into God's presence. Lastly, by God's spirit, we are being made as a temple for God. Interesting that Jesus comes as God's presence to be God's temple And as our priest and as our sacrifice, he takes us back, back into the center of God's presence. One day that will be realized fully. Look at the new Jerusalem, look at the new creation, and see all of the reflections there of Eden. And think about how the temple fits in with all that, and how Jesus is the one who's bringing us back 
to the goodness of God's intended design in Eden. Jesus is bringing us as our priest into the most holy place of God. More than that, we as individual Christians, the Bible says, are like living stones. The Apostle Peter says, being built into a temple for God's spirit. And Paul says we're like uh, a temple being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. As we are being made a house for God's glory by God's spirit in Christ. And a lot of good stuff here in the construction of the temple. We see the promise of God's presence, but we also see this warning of drifting away from God's presence. And as we go in the coming weeks, we're going to see the downfall of Solomon, the downfall of the kingdom, the division of the kingdom, and the rest of the story from there is pretty much more of the same. Let that be a warning to us, this invitation to be with God and to dwell with him, but this warning not to drift away from him. And let us be thankful all the while that it's Jesus who stands there in the middle, keeping us, holding us, calling us back, forgiving our sins, giving us mercy and grace. And let's be that dwelling place for God's spirit that we're called to be. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, for your grace, for your blood, for your sacrifice that restores us into the presence of God forever. Thank you for this picture of your promises and your faithfulness that we have in the temple. Thank you for being the fulfillment of that in your own body, in your own tearing apart of your flesh that we might enter into God's presence forever. Thank you for the gospel that makes us your children, makes us your sons and daughters. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, who fills us, and who indwells us now as your temple, your people. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.